0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and see what you'd have us to see. We ask you to guide and lead us. Help us to see what you would have us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 20. We have David. He's, He's had to run away from Absalom. Absalom's army was defeated by David. David has now been brought back to Jerusalem, or he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And he's forgiven everybody who's, who turned against him when he was chased away. And he has taken Amasa, who was the general for Absalom, and promoted him to general of his army alongside of Joab. And if we know Joab, and we do somewhat from the stories, we know that Joab's not going to take that very well. And in this chapter, he does not take it very well. So we want to look at this starting at verse one, and it happened to be there a man of Belial, whose name was Sheba, the son of Berach, uh, Bichri, the Benjamite, and he blew a trumpet and said, "We have no part of David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel." So every man of Israel went up from after David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah clave unto their king, and Jordan even to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, who he had left to keep house, and put them in a ward, and fed them, and went not into into them again, so that they were shut up unto the day of their deaths, living in widowhood. So we're going to stop there, that's the end of this paragraph. So you see David returning, and if you remember the end of the chapter, there was a whole conflict between the ten tribes of Israel and Judah and Benjamin. and the tribes of Israel said, "Why didn't you call us? We wanted we, you know, we should have been the first to end because we, we have ten parts of, in David, because we're ten parts of the kingdom. You're only two. And they had a big, battle, you know, big verbal battle going on. And it kind of made sense because David crossed the Jordan to come back home. And he started in Judah, so it makes sense that Judah would be the first ones there to to uh, visit him. And when we talked about this last week, we talked about you know if there was a parade out in down in Phoenix for the president, you know, in town, and everybody got mad that most of Phoenix came out to support support the parade, and very few people came from Kingman or Flagstaff. We would kind of laugh at them, you know. Of course, the Phoenix people <laughs> supported him and were there. That you you started there, but This has an intensified part because David is of the tribe of Judah, and so we see here. It says, "This man." There was a man of Belial. That term is worthless, godless. Okay, when they when they're using that term, it is not a nice term. It's talking about a bad guy, somebody who doesn't honor God, doesn't respect God. He's a wicked man, and so this guy comes up. His name is Sheba. And we don't know anything else about him other than he's from Benjamin. And Benjamin is kind of an interesting situation. The tribe of Benjamin supports David and Judah mostly, but they also are jealous of David because David is of the tribe of Judah. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So even though they support David in one sense, they're also against David many times because they believe that David has usurped their tribe to be the king. And so this man comes up, and it says he blows the trumpet, gets everybody's attention, and says, we don't have a part in David. We don't have an inheritance with the son of Jesse. In other words, what, 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 what is he ruling over for us? He, he's not part of us. We've heard, we've heard this statement before. We have no part in David. We have no inheritance of in David. And remember, all of this chaos in David's life is happening because of his murder of Uriah, so starting with the adultery with Bathsheba, but culminating in the murder of Uriah and the curse that God put on David, saying the, the sword shall not leave your home. You shall, have, you shall have trials and troubles. And so he just went through the battle with Absalom. Now he's getting ready to go through this very short-lived battle with Sheba. But Shiva now is rebelling against him. And seems to be a very persuasive person. It says that Israel, the ten tribes of Israel and Benjamin follow after him. And they've already had some words words going on, you know, that they're feeling slighted. You know, you David, you came over, you didn't wait for us to get here, and you've got all your people here, and you have not really treated us right. And It's kind of an interesting thing when you see family squabbles. And even though Israel is now a large nation, there's still a lot of family squabbles between the tribes. And David has unified them for a long time, but now that God has put judgment on him, there's going to be a lot of headaches. And this is ultimately going to culminate after the reign of Solomon when Solomon's son causes another rift between the, between the nations and ten tribes go and form the northern kingdom of Israel and two tribes form the southern tr- kingdom of Israel and that's going to be Judah and Benjamin and the other ten tribes are going to go away from that centralized family. But the roots of it are still right here. And this is the thing that we're looking at. David was disobedient to God and his nice, peaceful kingdom is full of turmoil and this is something that happens to us in our own lives if we are disobedient to God God brings turmoil in our life to try to bring us to repentance and coming back to him and the sad thing is when it's a leader that's disobedient everybody underneath that leader suffers David was disobedient and it's not just him that suffers it's not just his family that suffers even though both of them are suffering It's his entire nation that's going to suffer and continue to suffer. And this is the sad thing about when we sin. There are always consequences to sin. And we need to be aware that there's consequences to sin. And the consequences don't just affect us. And that is the one thing sometimes we'll figure out. Well, if I go out and sin, I'm the only one that's going to be affected by it. Nope. Others will always be affected by our, son, our sin in some way, shape, or form. And this is something we've got to understand. It's not just me. There is no single sin out there that is just me. You know, people go, well, all I did was tell a lie. Yeah, and so the people who thought that you were telling the truth went out and spread, you know, started basing, making decisions based on your lie. You hurt other people. You, know, you didn't just lie to yourself. You know, people will go, well, you know, I just slept with somebody. It's so just between the two of us. No, it's much deeper deeper than that. People will go, well, it's just pornography. It's not a big deal. It's just me watching things. What about the people that get suckered into doing those acts that you're watching and everything? There are ramifications that go far out beyond anything, and we need to be careful and be aware that sin has consequences that are far-reaching. And David is just beginning now to see his consequences. He lost the first child with Bathsheba, then he had the rape of Tamar, by, and then he had Absalom's murder of his half brother. and then he had Absalom rebelling against him. Now he's got Sheba <laughs> rebelling against him. And David never, to the end of his days, has a full peace back again like he had before his sin. This is heavy consequences. And this is something, even in our country, where we're looking at some consequences coming, the further our country gets away from God, the more the consequences are going to come into, into our lives and into our effect. To the point where, and I've said this before, we're returning back to what things were before Jesus and, and the church started. The, the world was miserable and terrible back then, and we're returning to that kind of world where nobody cares for anybody. And everybody's out for just themselves. And, and if they can take advantage of somebody, they take advantage of them. And if somebody's not strong enough to protect themselves, then they deserve to be, to be uh, taken advantage of. And that's where our world is getting to. Whereas Christ said, to love your enemies, be kind to those who despitefully use you. And what has happened from that is the church rose up, and they built orphanages. They built hospitals. They took care of the poor. They raised the, the rights of women over the years. And we're starting to return backwards away from all of this stuff. David ran into this stuff because of his rebellion. And it's going to cause great problems for his whole people. And so here he is. He's just now coming back into his kingdom. Literally, has just crossed Jordan River and Sheba rebels against him. Now his rebellion isn't quite as bad as Absalom. He hasn't declared himself king. But he has convinced ten. You know, the ten tribes to pull away from David. And actually it looks like 11 because it says the only ones that stuck with David is the tribe of Judah, his own people. So they, they, they're the only ones. So 11 tribes pull away from, from David right after the victor, after the victory. And it all really did start with all the words they had before. And it, the last chapter ended and the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So they really set themselves up. Sometimes it doesn't pay to win an argument. All right? The consequences often of winning an argument can be devastating. And here we see this devastation. Judah was very fierce with people and ready to, probably ready to take their swords out. And so they win, they win the battle. And kind of, they didn't lose the war, but temporarily lose the war. The rest of the tribes leave David. And it's like, okay, you won. And I've said this to people. Okay, you won your argument. The the people no longer like you. You showed no love in that. And sometimes with Christians, we'll win an argument and lose the love side of things. And people go, well, yeah, I thought you guys were supposed to represent love. I didn't hear any love in that. And I'm not saying we turn over and just be a doormat, you know, and I, you all know that. I say, you know, we need to challenge people. But those challenges have to be in love. Our challenge when we preach about the gospel and the uh, consequences of sin and, and hell have to be out of love. You know, and I've, We've shared with you that one of the jokes that go around, you know, two pastors trying to find the same you know, job, both of them talk about hell, one gets hired, and the guy who doesn't get hired, he goes, well, why didn't I get hired? We, we talked about the same verse. We talked about the same topic. And they looked at him and said, when you talked about it, you sounded like you wanted them to go to hell. When that person talked about it, he talked about it that they didn't want him to go to hell. And that's what we want to be able to come out. Our love shows up. Yes, we tell them the truth, but it has to be in love. You know, my desire is that nobody goes to hell. But to do that, I may have to tell them about hell and that that's where they're going if they reject Jesus Christ. And, but it's the idea, if you reject Jesus Christ, that's where you're going. And here, the men of Judah, won the, they, won, they won the first battle. They, they, they put those guys in their place. And then the people who were put in their place decide, okay, we're just going back home. All right, David, you, you keep your men. You, you go ahead and get to your... Get to your town, but we're leaving. We're going back home. We're following Sheba back home in in this new rebellion. Now, Sheba hasn't declared himself king or anything. He's just saying, we don't have any part of David. Let's go. And obviously, he's charismatic enough that the people follow him. And they decide, it says, they all go home. This entire army, this entire nation that's gathered to greet David now abandons him. Now, it's not unusual, they would have been sent home anyway. Once David got to Jerusalem, they had their celebration and the return of the king. They all would have gone home anyway because this is what happened in those days. You went to war, you called the nation to, you called all the farmers and, the, and everybody to come, come to battle. Uh, so they, would have, they were going to go home anyway. But they didn't wait for the celebration of the king's triumph entry into Jerusalem, so they left. And actually, it's a slap in the face to David. We're not sticking around to honor you, David. These guys have made us too mad. Whatever whatever words they use, these guys really made us mad. We're we're taking our ball and going home. (laughs) And it's really what they did. But still, a slap in the face on David. And it's a treacherous part right now. Because who knows what's going to happen? The murmuring that goes on. And think about what happens. How often do we do this? We get our feelings hurt, and we start complaining. We start complaining to ourselves, And then when we get done complaining to ourselves, we start complaining to others. And we start getting people on our side, and other people are getting people on their side, and we get a schism built in. And it all starts with the murmuring and the complaining. We saw it all through uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy. The people would get unhappy. They'd start murmuring and complaining in their tent, and they would start sharing with their neighbors, and the next thing you know, they're ready to kill Moses because they've just talked themselves into such bad place. And we need to be careful of that. Any time we start complaining about life, it's amazing. When I start dwelling on what, on what I think is bad, how miserable I start feeling. It doesn't take long. And if I'm not careful, I'll start talking to others of people about how unfair things are and how bad they are. which is one of the reasons I try as much as possible to meditate on God's word and really do work at trying to follow and look at what's good. Because believe me, there's plenty of bad stuff I could be looking at and complaining, and we all know that. But if I look at God and say, God, you're going to work everything out for good. You're sovereign. You've got a reason for this. And that's the biggest thing. God, you have a reason for what's going on. I may not understand the reason. It may not make any sense to me. It may not make any sense to me until I get to heaven and God shows it, me what it meant in the long run. I can tell you when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and those guys went to the, the stake or went to the, to the arena and got torn up by animals and got, got pressed by heavy weights and you know, when they were quartered by animals on, all, you know, on four sides and, and split into four pieces, they didn't understand why and how that was good. Even now, 1,500 years later, we're reading about their deaths because of their stand for God and being built up, which wouldn't happen if it didn't, you know, we wouldn't be built up by their death if it didn't happen. They did not understand it. They probably wouldn't even understand when they first went to heaven and go, God, why would you do this? And he's just, wait. Wait, child, wait till you see what a blessing your death is going to mean to others. And we need to be able to understand, and this is why I say, we need to have, in our mindset, the attitude of the disciples. Thank God I have been found worthy to suffer for Christ. That goes totally against the grain of Western American and Western Christianity. Well, get saved and everything's going to be good. I hate that lie. (laughs) But we need to be careful of murmuring and complaining. We need to be careful when we're around people that are murmuring and complaining not to allow it to get keep going because it is so easy to get involved with them. And this is one of the reasons why we need to stay focused on Christ and stay focused on what God's doing. And, you know, the song, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one. We need to really be looking, not positive thinking, but just looking, God, what have you done for me, and keep focused on it. Because otherwise, we will dwell in the negative. Our flesh loves to feed on the negative. And, Negative will cause splits in churches, splits in groups, as people start drawing sides, you know. Well, that person should never have said that. Oh, you're right, that person should never have said that. Well, hold it, you know, do you know what happened? No, and then they get all these people ready to battle each other because they start taking sides. And, you know, the problem is we're all imperfect people. We're all imperfect people. We're all going to say and do things that are going to offend somebody at some point. And, you know, I heard some people when I was saying, well, I don't go to this church because their pastor offended me. I go, well, maybe you need to forgive that person and move on. Number one, don't, don't talk about that pastor and move on. If, if you really are that offended, go to another church and don't talk about that pastor. If not, forgive him and go back. He's human. He can make mistakes. And we can all, every one of us have said or done something that's going to irritate Probably each other sitting in this room, at some point something's been said that's irritated you, or been done that irritated you, and you have to realize the person's human, and we offer forgiveness. And it doesn't even mean that I have to ask for forgiveness or even go tell them I forgive them, just forgive. And I I like to try to live with as much as possible forgiving people, because I don't want to live in the misery. I don't want to look at all the bad side, and it doesn't matter. I've learned over the years that people are not accountable to me. Thank goodness. Because if they were, they'd be nothing but trouble. If they were accountable to me, I am not a nice guy sometimes and wouldn't and wouldn't give them forgiveness. They're accountable before God. And that is the whole thing that I'm learning over the years. We stand or fall before God. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell somebody, you know, especially if they're a close friend and I'm praying for them, that, hey, you're, you're not living right. You need to make these, you need to correct your life. But it's still, they have to stand and fall before God, not me. I have, and even then, I'm going to be careful. It's going to better be a sin that I know is a sin. Murmuring, stealing, lying, you know, those kind of things. I can go and say, hey, you know, that's a, you, know you need to really work on getting this right, but I better be praying for them. I've said this over and over, you know, the Bible tells us to correct each other in love, But if I, and my first statement is, if I don't love somebody enough to pray for them, I don't love them enough to, talk, to correct them. If I'm not praying for them, I don't even, can't even ever go to this next step. And the one thing I've learned about prayer, prayer works. Because it's going to change one of two hearts, and it usually changes mine. And when my hearts change, they seem to change for some reason. I don't know if they're changing or it's just my attitude toward them is not negative anymore and I look at the better side, but I've also seen people literally change but God usually changes me first and teaches me love and patience and kindness for them. And this is what's going on with David. David's lost his nation again. You know, He was forgiving everybody. <laughs> he was having a good time. I'm going home. And now before he gets home, the 11 of the ten, uh, 12 tribes are leaving to go back home before the party is over. Not a good, not a good place to be. Verse 3 says, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, which he had left to keep house, and put them in a ward and fed them, but went not until again, so that they were shut up until uh, the day of their death, living in widowhood. These are the concubines that he left behind when he, when he ran from Absalom. And remember that Absalom set a tent up on the top of the palace and then took each one of them into the tent and slept with them. And David says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Why? I'm not sure. You know, it could be any number of, it could be any number of reasons. He's embarrassed that his son slept with him. He doesn't want to have anything to do with him for that he may have considered the fact that you know maybe they should maybe he considered that even if they wanted to call it rape they should have fought harder against it who knows what his thinking was but as far as he's concerned they're defiled and he has nothing to do with them he, he doesn't divorce them he keeps them they're in the they're in the the uh, harem and they're fed and they're they're given their clothes they're given their food they're given a shelter but he no longer considers them his wives or you know, concubines <laughs> all right so why he did it there's all kinds of speculation I just think you know there's a lot of reasons and I can understand part of them um, and they lived that way celibate for the rest of their lives because that's where they were and they were in the harem and uh, and I don't know. If David was guilty for leaving them. You know, felt guilty for leaving them. Like, who knows what his reasons were? There's no, there's nothing in here to tell us why he did what he did. All we know is that they were no longer treated as his, as part of his harem. That he kept them in there. He still took care of them. He still took care of them. That was the law. He was to take care of them. But they were rejected. And this was from the Second Samuel 16. Uh, 20 through 23 when Absalom laid with them. These are, the, these are those women. Alright, verse 4. Then said the king to Amasa, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, and, and you here present. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried longer than the set time which he had pointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now shall Sheba, the son of Bishri, do more harm to us than Absalom. Take you the Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get fenced cities and escape us. And they went after him, Joab's men, and, she, and, and the Shearites, and the Pelites, and all the mighty men. And they went out of Jerusalem and pursued after Sheba the son of Bishri. When they were at the great stone of Gibeon, Amishai went before them, and. And Joab's garment that he had put on was girded upon him and upon the, a girdle with a sword fastened upon his loins so that the sheath thereof, and as he went forth, it fell out. And Joab said to Abishai, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Abishai by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amosah took no heed of the sword that was in Joab's hand, so that he smote him with it there in, uh, in the fifth rib, and shed out his bowels to the ground, and struck him not again, and he died. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bishri. All right. Joab's at it again. This is going to be his third out-and-out murder that we we are told of in the scriptures. All right. David goes to Abishai. Abishai, if you remember, in... uh, Samuel 19 was made the general and even when I said this I never understood why David made him general. Absalom makes Abish- Abishah the general. He comes out to fight. Joab and the soldiers soundly defeat A- A- Amasa, And how, what does David do? He rewards Amasah by making him general in, in, in uh, Joab's place. All right. So you take the defeated general and make him the general of your army When you have a general already in your army, now granted, now Joab is getting on the older side. He's been with David forever. David's getting older. Uh, Kind of makes one sense to replace, you know, get get a new younger general. But Joab, Joab is not a nice guy. He is not going to go out to pasture easily. All right, so this is a big deal, and I don't know if David's forgotten about what he did to to all these other guys. You know. um, but he's put this man in place. And he sends Abishah uh, out to assemble the troops. And he says, I want you gathered in three days. All he's got to do is gather Judah. He is not gathering the entire 12 tribes. alright All he's got to do is gather Judah. And it says that he takes too long to gather Judah, which makes me wonder what kind of general is he, to begin with. He's already been defeated by Joab, and he can't get the army assembled in three days. And so David gets a little upset, a little irritated. He calls Abishai and he says, OK, I don't know what's happened to this Amasa. Now you gather the army together and get going after Shiva, Because he realizes the longer Sheba is away, the more likely he is to get to a city and get protected. Remember, when David ran from it, we had Hushai telling them, telling Absalom, we need to get out there immediately to go, uh, go attack David. You know Because if he gets to a city and gets assembled, we're going to have problems. And you cannot let him get out and protect himself like that, uh, Oh, excuse me, Ahithophel. Gives him the advice: You got to get out there and get him before he gets in there. And Hushai goes in. No, we you know, got a good plan. You know, David's a really strong guy, and he listens to Hushai's advice. Here, David's already knowing. I can't let Sheba get out there and get to a city. He convinced everybody to rebel against me and go away. If I let him get to a city, he now might decide to build an army. So David understands what's going on. He's got, and now this Sheba's got a three-day lead to get organized and get into a city. And David already realizes it's too late. But he's going to send people after him anyway. All right? It's really too late. He's had three days to get someplace. And that's going to be a really long time in in the process. And so David goes to Abishai, which is uh, Joab's brother, and says, you lead the army out. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Abishai just said, come on, Joab, you can come and help me. Because right, David didn't go to Joab. He and Joab have had a little bit of a falling out somewhere along the lines. Either Joab's gotten older and he just doesn't want him to be the general, or we know that Joab's not been a nice guy. He's pressed David. He was the one that pressed David to bring Absalom back to the Jerusalem in the first place. Uh, and he's the one that killed Absalom after, afterwards. So he's not on friendly terms with Absalom. Absalom's killed, uh, Joab's killed Absalom, he's killed Abner, he's killed uh, the other guy that, was, that killed, killed uh, Joab's brother in battle, and then he killed him in cold blood, so we know at least three times that Joab has killed, and just out and out murdered, not in battle, which would be one thing, but just out and out killed people. And straight up murder. And David is not very happy with Joab. Not, not making him the king, uh, general in these in these battles. And they went out to do to go get him. And he says, we don't we don't want him to get into a fence city and escape him. So they ran out, and with Abishai went Joab's men, and the Gerhites and the and I'm not sure who they are and the mighty men. So all of David's men are going with this group, but it's Joab's men that Abishai takes. Alright? Uh, and David's sending his mighty men with, with this group. So he's sending his royal guard basically out with these guys because Amishah took too long to get the army together so he sends him his his 600 men and Abishai grabs Joab's men and they're out to go to battle. So these are veteran warriors that are going out with, with Abishai. These are the old the timers. These are the guys that know how to fight. And they get out and they get as far as Gibeon and it says the great stone and nothing I read told me what the great stone was. Apparently it was some meeting, meeting place uh, out there. They get to Gibeon and lo and behold, who shows up? Amishah. All right. Amishah is under the assumption that he is still leading this army that's been gathered up. Amisha is under the assumption that he's leading it. And it says that Amishah takes the lead. Because we have conflicting orders here. The new general has been told, get an army and go out. And then because he didn't get done in time, David you know, gets somebody else and puts him in charge of a group of men. And now you've got a conflict, possible conflict. And they just kind of backed off and let Amishah take the lead. Maybe because Joab's there, and Joab has a plan. And it says that Amisha was wearing Joab's garment that he had girded upon himself. What this means is whatever garment Joab used as a official uniform, Amishah has taken it on him. He's taken the general's general's uniform. Whatever whatever that meant for that day and age, I have no idea what that meant. What kind of armor he had on but he has taken Joab's garments and he has put a sword which I believe is probably Joab's (laughs) originally and it says he fastened his sword to his girdle upon his loin thereof and as he went the sword fell out. Now we already see that this guy isn't a great general. (laughs) He's already lost a big battle against David and Joab. David's promoted him he can't even keep his sword in his, in his sheath. He probably forgot to put the clip on it you know, to, to keep it in there. And he's riding along on the donkey being jostled around. And the sword falls out. So you've got a general riding into battle with no weapon. You can almost picture Joab out there. Because we see that he's here. He's already insulted that David has made this grand general over him. And now he's looking at him, and you can, you can almost see the disdain he's looking at him. Guy can't even keep his sword in his, in his sheath, and, and beyond that, he doesn't even know it's gone. This man is not a soldier, apparently. You know, at least he's not a good one. Officer losing his sword is a pretty big deal. You know, almost as bad as any soldier losing his gun in our day. You don't lose your gun. That's your, that's your protection. That's your way you stay alive. And so all of this comes up, and it says, Joab rides up to Amasa. He goes, are you in health? He gives him a good a friendly greeting, just as he did to Abner. Remember when he said to Abner, come aside. I have something to, I have news for you from David. And struck him in the fifth rib, or under the fifth rib. He did the same thing, too. Well, he actually just filled Absalom full of darts, yeah. <laughs> five darts or spears but he also took and he killed his his brother's killer by striking him in the fifth rib, in the same type of thing, and not in battle, not in activity. And he strikes him in, in the fifth rib, and we've talked about this. The fifth rib is right under everything, and, when they, and apparently it is a very destructive spot because it strikes into the bowels, and if you cut it just perfectly, as in this case, the bowels start spilling out. All of his intestines start coming out. So this was a sharp sword, strike, and it was a pretty deep and wide sword strike that his l- innards literally started pouring out of him. And he was dead. <laughs> and it said that Amosah took no heed of the sword. I do not know how Joab gets away with this. This guy, we kind of understand, he lost his sword. He wasn't very good, bright in the first place. But he did the same thing to Abner. Says I've got a message from David, and then he takes Abner aside and and strikes him in under the fifth rib, and Abner's an experienced general; he has been Saul's general for years, and Abner's and Joab's able to kill him. I don't know if if Joab is just really fast with the sword, or what, but people, or maybe he's really friendly and charismatic, and people aren't really paying attention, but his reputation should be going before him. But you know. By Abner's time, you know Abner's already known that he's killed his killed family. This guy should know that he's killed Abner and other people, you know, and should be aware. And yet, Job keeps getting away with this. He brings his sword and he's cutting these people under the fifth rib and killing them, and it says they never notice. They just never notice what he's doing. And like I say, maybe maybe he was fast on the draw. I don't I don't know how it can happen, but. Now this are going under the, fifth, under the fifth rib. It's from the front. So grabs him with his right hand. Yeah, he grabbed him to give him a kiss and then drove a sword into him. So we don't know all of how this happens or why it happens, but you know this is kind of an interesting thing that Joab's a nasty man. David's been working to get rid of him. But David also fears him because he's, this is going to be, I think, the last time that David tries to get rid of Joab. But he's going to tell Solomon get rid of him. You don't want Joab around. Joab's trouble. And with the new king, it's a good time to get rid of him and and he's going to take care of him. But Joab is not a nice man. He kills his enemies. He kills his perceived enemies. This man he looks at as an enemy. So he goes and he kills him and he says, he struck, the ground, struck him not again, so that Joab and Abishai, the brother, his brother, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bishri. So they get up and they go, okay, Abishai's dead, let's go. <laughs> you know, didn't die in battle, but we're going to move on. All right, verse 11. And one of Joab's men stood by him and said, He that favors Joab and he that, that is for David, let him go after Joab and Amasai wallowed in the blood in the midst of the highway, and when the man men saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasai out of the highway into the field and cast a cloth, over, a cloth over him, and he saw that everyone that came by him stood still, and when he was removed out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bishri. <laughs> this is a strange picture. Joab kills him, Abishai just kind of adds up and said, okay, good, let's go on. And they start writing. They just leave him, and he's in pain. He didn't die instantly. It says he wallowed in the blood, which means he was rolling around in the blood. He didn't die instantly. He was dead. I mean, it was a death blow. But they had no sympathy for him whatsoever. They just left him to die. And it wasn't unusual in that day and age for that to happen, Okay, Just to leave somebody to die and let them suffer in pain with no compassion. This is the type of man Joab is. He's a soldier. He's a warrior and and a murderer. This is not the first time he's done this. And so they left him there. And it says that everybody that walked past Amasa stopped. Because many of them are on his side. They're, they're, They're his army. He's the one that's gathered them and all of a sudden Joab and Abishai are leading. This is a moment that has to make some decision. Whose side are we on? Who, who are we supporting? And you just watched the old general mur- murder the new general and you have to make a decision. Am I following the old general? I know he's on David's side but do I follow him? This is a moment when everything could have gone wrong. And this is a place where God's mercy showed up on David to bring everybody under Joab and and Abishai. Because at this point, the army could have just fallen apart. And the the man stood by and he said, you know, he that favors Joab and he that is for David, let him go after Joab. Basically he's saying, you know, if you want to to follow Joab, get going. But also he puts in, and those that are on David's side, follow Joab. Because now we're trying to project, we're trying, you know, and he's bringing it together. You know, this is Joab's man saying, follow Joab. But if you won't follow Joab, he's, well, he's going to make sure that David gets settled into it back into his kingdom, so follow him anyway. This is a real turning point before the battle's even started. Everybody could just say, huh, I'm going home. You yeah. Abishai and Joab aren't the one that called me. Amasa called me to this battle. Uh, but this call to help David for the, the men of Judah is going to keep them moving forward. And But even with this, everybody who walks past Amishai is seeing him wallowing and weaving on the ground. And this man takes him aside, dumps him on the field, and covers him up so nobody can see him anymore. Again, no compassion. He hasn't apparently hasn't died yet. He just dumps him on the side of the road. And you can think, most of the people coming by him are going to have compassion. They're not trained soldiers. They're not murderers. They're seeing somebody in pain and going to want to help. They may not know what to do, but it's going to be shocking to them. You know, for the soldiers, Joab's men, David's mighty men, they've seen this a hundred times, you know, it's not... It's not new to them. The men of Judah that are marching out, these guys aren't the soldiers. These are the farmers seeing somebody bleeding out. You know, and it's going to shock them and kind of stop them in their, their tracks. And he said, hey, if you want to help David, follow, follow Joab. Follow Joab. And as soon as he was removed, nobody was seen anymore. They all followed after Joab. You know, and this is kind of hard for us to picture the total uncaring that was going on here. A man has just been murdered and nobody cares. But in our day and age we're starting to see that kind of attitude coming back. People get hurt, people get harmed, and nobody stops and helps. Nobody seems to care. And this is the world that we're returning to. This is the world before Jesus came and before the church started growing and expanding and it is what we're returning to. Murder babies, murder, murder old people because they're going to eat up the inheritance of our family, so we might as well kill them before they eat up the inheritance. Uh, murder the babies, kill each other, you know, if you're not strong, you don't deserve to live. The working out of it, the evolutionary idea that if you're not strong enough to live, you don't deserve to live. And. We call it evolution, but it is exactly what was happening before. They didn't call it evolution, but if you weren't strong enough to live, you didn't deserve to live. You know, they didn't have the evolution part on it, but they still, the same principle was applied. And this is where we are going to today. You know, Well, you weren't strong enough to protect yourself. You deserve what you got. And in many parts of the world, that's exactly the way they live. And in America, we're headed that way again, or for the first time, because we started out on the right right track. But you know it's a very shame when we see the unrighteousness of man living out. Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And sometimes we may not even realize how wicked our heart is and then we start looking maybe at the entertainment we, we allow into our lives and going, oh, I, I thought that was wonderful. That person just beat up all the, all the bad guys i become real sensitive to shows like Batman and Superman. Our good guys come in, beat up all the bad guys, and then that's supposed to be the hero. And it's like, OK. But you know, I've got just, and, and those are all considered good shows. And I'm going, OK, what do we see in most of our, our detective shows? You know, they shoot each other up. You know, they shoot all the bad guys. They beat up the bad guys. You know, what are we teaching each other? As long as you're doing it for the right reason, it's OK to be abusive? That's not the Bible's way of teaching things. And yet, this is exactly what used to happen all the time. And God came in and he said, love your enemy, be good to them. You know, and I am just, like I say, I watch movies and TV anymore, and I just go, how could I ever have thought any of this stuff was good? Because it's so anti-Bible, anti-correct. And it starts making me wonder, why did I watch these things? Who does win. they take, take out the bad guys. So we kind of slightly under there a little bit. The ends justified the means. <laughs> yeah. He was the bad guy, he deserved it. <laughs> and you know, this is where there's a real problem going on in our world. All of these little minuscule things start, but they start to build up. We teach enough of our kids, you know, the bad guys can deserve what they get and it doesn't matter if we can be mean enough to, to make them. You know, the Chuck Norris, you know. I am the good guy and I win. And whatever else. You know, he's the first one that popped into my head. You know, it's as long as I win, it doesn't matter how I win. Because I'm the good guy. Because I'm the good guy and I represent good. It is really important for us to be able to look at this. The world tells us that the as long as you get a good ending, it doesn't matter how you get there. That is not God's way of doing things. And we need to be very careful about this because God wants us to stand up and be his representatives. And maybe that means that we die. Maybe it means that we take up, and this is a hard thing, when do we take up our rights and defend our rights, and when do we just meekly take what comes our way? And that's a hard thing. And I've listened to both sides over the days, and I've listened on the radio. There's some shows that I've heard, and I'm going, you don't even know what you're beginning to say. And then I've heard others talk about how you have to defend all your rights, and I'm going, where is that where is the point? Because there are some things. Paul, at one point, took up his rights. I'm a Roman citizen. I appear to, I appear to Caesar. I want to appear before Caesar. And what's really bad is that the, the, the governor was going to let him go. But because he appeared to, appeared to Caesar, the Supreme Court, he had to send him to Rome, where, where Paul died. Well, that's where Paul wanted to go. Well, he wanted to go to Rome anyway, so it worked out well uh, as far as going where he wanted. But he did a lot of good things when he was there. He was under house arrest, and many people got saved when he was there. Uh, then he died. So the real question is, you know, God, what is it you want me to do? Uh, Saul never appealed, appeared to Caesar, appealed to Caesar before that. And he had been beat unjustly. He had been punished unjustly without trials, and he never appealed, appeared, appealed to Caesar in any of those. But there was a time when he said, I want to go, I want, to, I, I want my case to be taken to Caesar. So we need to be able to live by faith and ask God, God, what is it you want? Now, to go around and do it totally wrong and just be violent and, and get what we want? No. One of the things I love about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was his nonviolence. He, he says, we're going to be civilly disobedient. We're going to ask for our rights, but we're not going to be violent. How did he get that? He got it from the, from the disciples who disobeyed the civil laws and then took the punishment that came upon them for disobeying their laws. And this is what I've said. They said we ought to obey God rather than men, but that did not mean that man did not have the right to punish them for their disobedience. And they understood that. God, we're going to obey you and we're going to take whatever punishment comes our way. And we as Christians, in this day and age, I hear people say, well, we're going to hold up our rights and we're going to do what it takes to get it and it doesn't matter and they have no right to punish us. No, if you're disobeying the law, the, the government has the right to punish you. And you need to take it patiently and show the love of God. If you're going to disobey your law, you're going to take the punishment. Now, maybe, maybe it'll be overturned and all of that, and that's fine. But they still have the right to punish you. And none of the disciples ever said, well, you can't beat us. We were following God. You know, their attitude was, thank God we've been found worthy of suffering. And we've got to be able to take that attitude. God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it, and I will take the consequences for doing what you have asked me to do. And this is important for us to understand. Our life must be centered in the Word of God, because if I go by feelings, I'm not going to want to get beat. I'm not going to want to be disobedient. And if I'm if I'm a strong person, I'm going to I'm going to try to force my you know my I'm going to try to force my rights because I'm strong. So, I want to end here at verse 13. But we see the consequences of David's sin being national consequences. And we've opened up all kinds of avenues for Joab to make all kinds of killing, you know, uh, murders because of things that David has done. And we see sin coming out. Uh, Joab is full of pride a lot of his reason to kill Amasaw was because Amasa took his position. He's general and he doesn't deserve it. Look at that. He can't even keep his sword. I beat him in battle just a, just a couple of days ago and now he's general and he can't hold on to his sword. He j- felt he was justified in killing Amasa. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to always remember the consequences of sin and help us to, to know that we are to follow you no matter what and look at your word and, and guide and and lead us in your word. Give us the strength to follow you, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.